Welcome to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're here. For more information, you can visit hallelujah.org or download the AOI app on Apple or Google Play. Well, today I just want to talk just a little bit about um, a verse in the book of Job. So Job is going through a pretty difficult time. I, I know that that's, uh, that's easy for some of us re- to relate to, but at the same time, uh, Job was going through a very difficult time, and he remained faithful through all of that. But you see, there's a verse in the book of Job that says uh, that Yahweh does great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. And I'm chewing that verse over in my head one day, and, and I realize that there's a lot to this verse. Because, yes, Yahweh has done great things past finding out. There are things that we can never even imagine in this world. We'll never know in this lifetime. They're past finding out. But then he's also done wonders without number, an innumerable number of wonders that we can enjoy, that we can study, that we can use science to study. We talked just a few moments ago during the scripture reading, knowledge falsely so-called. Well, you know, that word knowledge comes from the word science. Science is knowledge of the natural world. So what it's actually talking about there is science falsely so-called. But there's a lot of false science going around today, and many times we don't even recognize that false science when we see it. We simply blindly trust the professors of the faith of evolution. But I'm here to tell you today that there are wonders all around us that we can study and that we can give Yahweh glory for, that we can actually use for His glory. I want to point out just a few of those things that we can study, not the ones past finding out, the ones that are beyond number, those wonders throughout the universe. The first one I want to talk about is what I call Yahweh's little wonder, the tiniest wonder in the world, the hummingbird. And the hummingbird, many of you, if you've ever heard me speak before, you've probably heard me talk about the hummingbird, but I just get so fired up about it because it's it's just remarkable. And it's an excellent example of something that is so well designed that it can fly up to 34 miles per hour. It can fly forwards, backwards, side to side. At birth, it weighs less than a post-it note placed in the palm of our hands. You know, as it flies and as it hovers, it uses a figure eight pattern. And this figure eight pattern of its wings beats it 80 times per second. Think about that now. Every time we snap our fingers, 80 times, 80 times, 80 times, 80 times, this little hummingbird is beating its wings. It's something that we have not been able to accomplish as humans. I looked it up the other day. So we have a great drummer over here, right? Well, The fastest drummer in the world can only do about 10 beats per second. And this hummingbird is beating its wings 80 times per second. How is it even possible? So they fly from flower to flower collecting nectar, and they can tell just by tasting the nectar what the sugar content is. And all these hummingbirds, they need a lot of sugar to function. So that's what gives them the energy to enable sustained flight. So their heart is beating at 1,200 beats per minute so that they can enable this sustained hovering flight, 1,200 beats per minute. Now, 
If they go to a flower and they taste that nectar and it's less than 10% sugar content, they move to the next flower because they know that anything less than 10% just won't work. It won't keep them alive. In fact, that's built inside of them. How did they learn that? Perhaps over millions of years of evolution, somehow they kept dying when it was less than 10%, so they taught themselves only to drink nectar that's more than 10% sugar. No, that's not possible. So they have all of these features built inside of them. But you know what? That brings up one big problem. Because with that fast of a heartbeat, 1,200 beats per minute, every night that the hummingbird settles down at night, they should die. They shouldn't be able to make it past the very first night, and yet somehow they do. We know that we see hummingbirds the very next morning, and then we see them the next morning. So what's happening? Well, that's one of those things that science can study, and it can look at those wonders without number. It's something that we call torpor. It's almost like hibernation in a bear, except a whole lot more spectacular. Because every night when the hummingbird settles down, its heart goes from 1,200 beats per minute to 35 beats per minute. And the next morning, the hummingbird speeds its heart back up and it flies away as if nothing ever happened. All right, how is this possible? How should it be possible unless it was engineered by a divine engineer, someone with ultimate wisdom who was able to put it all together and make it work the way it was supposed to work. So when I talk about the hummingbird, I think it's this tiny little wonder, one of these wonders without number. And I could speak for an hour just on that one creature. We were only able to cover a fraction of what's available that allows the hummingbird to do what it does and to do that really well. But you know what? Today, there is this evolutionary theory. There are a lot of different ways of looking at the hummingbird. And some people would look at this amazing little creature and they would say, wow, look at what time and chance has accomplished. Yeah, that's called evolutionary theory, and it's directly in opposition to what we read in the Bible. So in Genesis, we read that Yahweh created everything. Everything was good. And in fact, at the very end of creation, everything was very good. So he created these things, yet some people choose not to accept it. It all started when Charles Darwin took a trip to the Galapagos Islands, and there he saw different birds. The birds were the same kind of bird, but they had variations. And that's really good science. In fact, it is great science and it's observable that Yahweh has placed within different animals the ability to adapt in tiny different ways. That's just a miracle. It just is the way it's supposed to be. But you see, Charles Darwin said, well, if animals can adapt in tiny little ways, then what if we give it millions of years? Maybe you can turn an ape-like creature into a human. That was taking it way too far. You know, Charles Darwin, he had a little bit of a credibility problem because if you go back to some of the editions of his seminal work, which is called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races, you're going to find this statement in the closing few uh, sentences of his book. All right? What does he say? There's grandeur in this view of life, evolution with its several powers having been originally breathed by the Creator into a few forms or into one. 
Whoa, you mean Charles Darwin believed in a creator? Well, actually, later we found tucked away in a letter that he wrote to one of his colleagues. He said, you know what? I've long regretted that I truckled to public opinion and used the pentateuchal term of creator. I really meant everything appeared by chance. Wow. So in other words, he put the words by the creator in his book so he could sell more books because he knew if he just put his theories out there as he actually believed them, that no one would ever fall for them. So it's that little bit of leaven, right? So we insert a little bit of leaven, and then we put a little bit of truth in there, and before long, everybody was accepting these theories. But you know what? That's not the way our country actually started. Yale was established in 1701 in an effort to train preachers. Their coat of arms to this day has the biblical phrase, Urim and Thummim, light and truth, written on their coat of arms in Hebrew still to this day. But you know what? They've gone a long ways from this light and truth because you can go to Yale's Peabody Museum today and you can see this ascent from ape-like creature into humans and it's stated as fact. And if you have any, any doubt about it whatsoever, then just visit the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and you can meet your relatives. <laughs> now, we laugh about it, but think about this. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of school children going through this museum every year, and they are meeting their relatives. They see it as fact that they are nothing more than a highly developed ape-like creature. And so what does that do to the way we think when we realize that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of a loving creator who cares about us? Well, to me, that does something to the way I look at life. But for all of these people who have believed this, they are looking at it as if they are nothing more than cosmic accidents, star stuff, the result of an explosion in space 14 billion years ago. But really, what effect does the belief in evolution have on our faith? Can it really be such a big deal? Well, of, of course, Proverbs 30 says that every word of Yahweh is pure. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. So we shouldn't be adding or taking away to his words. Really, again, though, if we just try to insert a few million or a few billion years into the Scriptures, can it make such a big difference? Oh, it really can. Joseph Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, he was an atheist, and he imprisoned millions in labor camps. Now, the official records indicate that he killed at least three million people. He promoted this atheistic education system in the public school system. What do we see going on in America today? We see these same patterns repeated. But what was his foundation? We looked at the foundation of Yale, and we've seen how far it came. But let's look at the foundation of Stalin and see what this kind of damage can do. You know, he was walking with a childhood friend one day, and he volunteered a pretty revealing statement. He said, you know, they're fooling us. There is no Elohim. I'll lend you this book to read, so he's like, you know, let me give you a book, and it will show you that the world and all living things are very different from what you've imagined. And so his friend is like, well, what do you mean? What, what book are you talking about? And Stalin says, Darwin, you must read it. 
So Darwinian evolution, the idea that we're accidents, is the first step on a very dangerous path that we would do well to stay away from. It leads us away from the truths of the creator and of the creation. And still today, there's this debate raging on. Inspired design or random chance? Evolution versus creation. Were we created with purpose or were we conceived from chaos billions of years ago? And then we have to look at our foundation. What is our foundation? You know, I think, uh, I believe it can be found in the very first verse of Scripture. It says, In the beginning, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. In other words, that encompasses the entire universe right there, and it's found in the first verse of Scripture. That's pretty relevant. That's a good foundation to stand on. What I like to do is I like to take a Bible, and I like to flip to the first verse of Scripture, right, and read that verse. All right, and then I close the Bible in on, in on itself, so everything else is stacked on top of that verse. I'm like, this is the foundation for the universe. It tells us how everything came to be. This is the history of the universe from beginning all the way to the end. What happens if you remove this first page? Everything collapses. That's how important this is. It is foundational. Well, did our Savior, did our Messiah teach with the same foundation? Oh, yes, he did. He said, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. If you believe not his writings, how would you believe anything that I say? Okay, so Moses, the writings of the Torah, the Pentateuch, is very important. And then we look at the foundations of America, and we see the exact same thing again. The founding documents say we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their government with certain... uh, Oh, did I? No, no, not by their government. (laughs) That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's right. It's something that the government can't take away. These are rights given by the creator. And we look at some of the greatest scientists of all times. They had similar statements. For for example, Galileo said that mathematics is the language with which Yahweh has written the entire universe. So we're talking about numbers here. Well, numbers, I'm not good at numbers, but I'm going to give you a little example of mathematics for just a second. Let's talk about Leonardo Fibonacci. He was an Italian mathematician. He lived around 1200 AD, and he traveled with his father down to northern Africa, where he became familiar with this, the Arabic numeral system. He'd been using the Roman numeral system for many, many years. But then he said, well, let's just try to do some simple things with numbers and see if we can come up with any, anything really cool. So he proposed a sequence of numbers where each number is the sum of the previous two numbers. Sounds complicated, but basically it's not at all. You take one plus one, which equals two. Take the next in that sequence, drop them down. So one plus two is three. Two plus three, five, eight, 13, 21, 34, 55, so on and so forth for a very, very long sequence of numbers. It's just something fun that this Italian mathematician did a very long time ago until we started to see these patterns in nature. For example, the pineapple has ridges, and those ridges, if you count them one way, well, they actually equal eight. There's eight ridges one way. And then if you count them the other way, it equals 13. Well, it's just coincidence that 
both 8 and 13 are part of the Fibonacci sequence? Eh, maybe it's coincidence. And then we started looking at the sunflower. And in the middle of the sunflower are all these seeds in a spiral pattern. If, if you start to count the number of rows of these seeds, it equals 34 one way, 55 the other way. In other words, both of these are in the Fibonacci sequence, just this random sequence that a man a long time ago thought up. Coincidence? And then we realized that Brussels sprouts actually grow in the Fibonacci sequence. These rows of Brussels sprouts are in the Fibonacci sequence. They follow the same pattern of numbers, which blew me away, by the way, when I found out, because I always thought Brussels sprouts grew like this right here. But no, they grow in the Fibonacci sequence. And now there's something else you can do with this. You can take a piece of graph paper and you can graph out this sequence in the form of a line. But that line curves to create a spiral. We call it the golden ratio. It spirals up by uh, basically 1.618 and keeps going out farther and farther and farther. It creates a really nice spiral shape. So then scientists were like, well, what if we could find this spiral somewhere out in, in the universe? Wouldn't that be really neat? So the first thing they thought of was a nautilus shell. And then they realized that's not a Fibonacci spiral. The Nautilus shell is actually what we call a logarithmic spiral, which is, again, a very amazing, very designed spiral. But still, it's not the Fibonacci spiral. So maybe we can't find this Fibonacci sequence in the spiral form until we started looking at the design of the outer ear and realized that the shape and growth of the outer ear many times follows this exact spiral pattern until we get older. And as we get older, our earlobes distend a little bit and it gets out of that perfect spiral. But as we're young, it follows a Fibonacci spiral. Wow, all right? And then we train our telescopes up in the universe and see spiral galaxies that almost perfectly, some of them, follow Fibonacci spirals. Coincidence? And then the shape and growth of eggs many times follows a Fibonacci spiral. And then we turn our cameras back down towards the earth in these hurricane patterns many times, not always, but sometimes follow a Fibonacci spiral. Coincidence? Well, let's think about this for a second because numbers are abstract. Numbers only exist in our brain. Okay, I have a good friend who's an astrophysicist from the University of Boulder, Colorado, is where he got his PhD, and he always says, you can't stump your toe on a number three. It just doesn't exist. We can think of the number three in our head. We can say, well, there's one, two, three people or one, two, three objects. We can write the number three on a piece of paper and do experiments with it, but the number three is only in our brain. Well, if the number three is only in our brain then how in the world should we be able to comprehend numbers and sequences that then we go out and we find all over the universe? If we believe that all of this is simply chance, then there's no way in the world that this should work. But if we believe in the Bible and what it says, that we are created in the image of our creator, then that means that He's given us the ability to comprehend some of the mathematics with which he wrote the universe, just like Galileo said. So Yahweh used these numbers 
to make everything around us, to make the natural world, and then he allows us to understand some of those numbers, not all, but some of those numbers, so that thousands of years down the road, we're doing little experiments and little fun things with numbers, and somebody comes up with a sequence of numbers that has already been used all throughout the creation of the universe. That's just one example of these wonders without number that we find all around us. And then we look at another famous scientist, and this one was Sir Isaac Newton. And he said that Yahweh created everything by number, weight, and measure. Now, he's quite influential in science, but is his foundation correct? Did Yahweh really use numbers, weights, and measures to calculate everything perfect? Well, now let's look at one of these wonders without number when it comes to our solar system and our galaxy. Because when you look at the universe, we were out with all the youth looking at the Milky Way galaxy and all of these stars. And it's easy to think, wow, look how big this whole universe is. And look how small we are. Well, seemingly, it might think that we're just this little speck floating in space. In fact, many atheists have assumed that. They're like a pale blue dot floating in a cosmic expanse. But there are some extraordinary characteristics that enables Earth to exist in a universe that, for the most part, is very hostile to life. Let me just give you a couple of examples real quick. So we live in this spiral galaxy. We call it the Milky Way galaxy. It looks somewhat like this. But in the middle of it, there's a big black hole. What that means is that anything that passes the event horizon is sucked in, never to appear again. Even light can't escape the gravity of this black hole. Would you want to live there? No, no, I'm okay. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, what about out towards the outer edges of the galaxy where there are elemental deficiencies? The wood, the stuff that we're made out of, the stuff that this screen's made out of, it doesn't exist out there. Would you want to live out there? No, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. But in between the Sagittarius and Perseus arms of the Milky Way, nestled in this perfect spot, we find the Earth. In the spot perfect for our survival so that we can thrive and survive. Is that a coincidence? I don't believe so. In fact, where we're situated allows us not to have to worry about supernovae, exploding stars, black holes, stellar collisions, elemental shortages, all of these things. Coincidence? And then we live about 93 million miles away from the sun in an area known as the habitable zone. What does that mean? Well, what it means is if we were just 5% closer, we would be boiling hot and uninhabitable. We'd be like the planet Venus. I don't want to live there. I'm okay. Uh, What about 10 to 20% farther away? We would be freezing cold like the planet Mars. Still uninhabitable. I don't want to live there. We don't. We live right in the middle of this band, in the habitable zone, in an area that is perfect for life coincidence? And then what if we had a very elliptical orbit or an oval-shaped orbit? Well, then we would be alternately freezing cold, boiling hot, freezing cold, boiling hot. Instead, we maintain this distance from the sun at about 93 million miles very well with only a slightly elliptical orbit. Coincidence? All of these things, if they didn't exist, we would be dead. And then when we look out in the solar system, we see all of these planets, and they're, they're beautiful planets, but a lot of them are larger, especially the gas giants farther out in space, and they act as garbage collectors. So when 
cosmic debris enters into our solar system, many times the gravity of those huge planets suck in that debris so that it doesn't crash into Earth. A good example of this was in 1994 when comet Shoemaker-Levy broke apart into 21 fragments and the tremendous gravity of Jupiter sucked those fragments in. Now, as it's traveling into our solar system, it's traveling at about 133,000 miles per hour, which means you could get from New York to L.A. in about a minute and a half, something like that. All right, so this thing is zipping through the solar system, and then Jupiter pulls it in. Well, when it hits Jupiter, it hits with the force of a million atom bombs, and it sends up this mushroom-shaped cloud of gas a thousand miles into the atmosphere of Jupiter. What would happen if that would have struck Earth? We would not be having this conversation right now. So I am very glad that we have these garbage collectors outside of our solar, outside farther out in the solar system, which does not appear to be a coincidence. A few other things that we have is something like a geomagnetic field that enables our compasses to work, but it also protects us from solar wind and cosmic radiation. So as we speak right now, there's harmful radiation being streamed towards the earth. But once it gets close, the geomagnetic field actually helps bounce back that radiation back into space so that it doesn't affect us and it doesn't cook us to death. Except in a few instances when tiny bits of radioactive particles enters earth's atmosphere along the north and south poles, which becomes what we call the aurora borealis and australis, the northern and southern lights. So all of these things help protect us. Then we have an amazing moon. Our moon protects us. It helps circulate the warm and cold waters of the oceans. It helps with the stability of Earth's axis. It helps moderate gravity. So many different things. And then we have a breathable atmosphere. This combination of gases is not known to exist anywhere else in the universe that we know of to date. Is that a coincidence? That out of everything we've ever found, this is the only place that has a breathable atmosphere usable by humans? And then we have a terrestrial planet. We have land. That's really important. A lot of planets don't have land. A lot of planets are made mostly of gases. Well, you can't stand on gases. So we have a terrestrial planet. In addition to that, we have an abundance of not just any form of water, liquid water. Liquid water is absolutely essential to life. Coincidence? I don't think so. In fact, I know that it's not a coincidence. Isaiah 45 says, Thus saith Yahweh, He created the heavens, Elohim himself. He formed the earth and made it. Now, what did he do to the earth? He established it. He created it not in vain, and he formed it to be inhabited. That's right. Isaiah 45 says that Yahweh created the earth specially to be inhabited. So while it's really, really neat to think about all of this extraterrestrial alien life out there and it makes for good movies, what we see is that the earth is very, very specially created. Again, I'm not surprised and this is just one more of these wonders without number, the wonders of our creator that the book of Job tells us about 
and we could go on and on and on. I do want to finish with a little bit more of astronomy in just a second, but uh, just before we conclude, I wanted to point out that we are really, really excited about something that uh, has been happening within the last few weeks, and we are soon to, this is such a blessing, we are soon to have open the Wonder Center in Science Museum just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, about 35 miles from downtown Nashville. It is a massive science museum with a full-size planetarium. Uh, it has auditoriums. It has uh, speaking rooms, uh, tiered classrooms where we can do conferences and things like that. It is really a beautiful place, and it was already built. It was built about 20 years ago as a community science museum, but of course, from an atheistic perspective, uh, and we intend to build this thing out over the next few months to give glory to Yahweh to actually point back to the design of the creation instead of pointing to these random chance evolutionary ideas that have infected the culture in a negative way that have allowed these school shootings, and the teen suicide that is on the rise, and the 22 veteran suicides that we see every single day, and all of these atrocities, because these things that we see that are plaguing society all come down to the fact that no one values human life as being created. They think they're simply animals, and we've seen the consequences uh, as a result of that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So as we conclude, I'm going to show you a couple of photos of space. All right. Um, let's see if I can get this one up here. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of Yahweh. The firmament shows his handiwork. It says that day into day utters speech. Night after night shows knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Well, we were out in the fields over here close to Rising Star, and we actually got some astrophotography the other night, photos of the Milky Way. In fact, I think I forgot to put those in the presentation, but let me trust you, trust me, they were very spectacular. I love y'all's unpolluted night sky. It's a beautiful place for that. But about 15 years ago, I started taking photos of space. One of the very first photos I ever got through a telescope uh, about... Uh, I don't know, 18 years old, 17 years old, was this one right here, the Great Orion Nebula. Spoken of in Amos 5, Job 38, Job 9. And I've always read about it, and I've always seen these pictures in these magazines, and then I took the picture for myself, and I was blown away. And I said, I've got to share this with other people. I can't keep this as just a hobby. I can use this to talk about creation and the Creator. And so the more we started to use these photos to share all of this, the more I realize that the universe is massive. Our closest star is about 4.3 light years away. Now, you know, that's hard to, for us to grasp. I might say, well, I could go to the grocery store 4.3 miles away. I'll be back in five or 10 minutes. No big deal, right? No, no, but 4.3 light years away is a very, very long, long ways away. Uh, so what if we could break this down instead of light years? What if we could break it down into miles per hour? So right there where that arrow is is our closest star, Proxima Centauri. 
Let's jump on our fastest spacecraft currently in existence, the Voyager and the New Horizons spacecraft, which are right now going through the universe, going through our solar system, going outside of the solar system at a rate of about 40,000 miles per hour. Y'all, 40,000 miles per hour is really, really fast. So surely 4.2 light years away shouldn't take us very long. Well, 70,000 years later, we would just be pulling up to the gas station at Proxima Centauri, all right? And that's our closest extrasolar star. So when you realize that the closest star is still unbelievable distances away, it gives you this idea of just how big our creator is. If he can create this universe, which is so massive, the Eagle Nebula, well, that one, it would take us about 117 million years going the speed of our fastest spacecraft to reach it. The Great Hercules Cluster, which is up right now in the night sky. If you get a good pair of binoculars, you can actually see it. It's a cluster that contains several hundred thousand stars all clumped together, and it would take us 419 million years if we were to jump on our fastest spacecraft to get there. Our sister galaxy Andromeda, 48 billion years away, and that's still traveling at 40,000 miles per hour. And lastly, the Whirlpool Galaxy, which is 500 billion years away, traveling at the speed of our fastest spacecraft. Does that give you an idea of just how big the universe is? And think of this, Yahweh's a lot bigger than that, right? He's the one who can create that. He's the one who can break the laws and physics of the universe because he created the universe. And he made all of this to remind us that he has done great things past finding out and wonders without number. And I'm also here and I'm also very glad to say that one of those ultimate wonders, his love for us, Yeshua, to save us from our sins so we could be a part of his family for eternity. I mean, think about the wonders and think about the love that he cares for us so much to put all of these factors, and again, the factors, we could talk about those factors for weeks and weeks and weeks, to put all of these factors in place so that we could be sitting here today worshiping and glorifying him. I think that's pretty special. Thank you all.